Well, happy Sunday. It's good to have you guys here. We're going to continue through this series, Believe and Live Through the Gospel of John. So I hope you got a copy of God's Word. Go ahead and make your way to John chapter 4. I've been in it for a couple months now, and we're now in chapter 4, so make your way there. And if you are a visitor with us, we're just grateful to have you here. We always encourage you to stick six with us, stick six weeks, so that you can get to know us a little bit, we can get to know you. Um, but today, as we walk through God's Word in John chapter 4, we got a lot to cover. Okay, so we're going to kind of dive in quick and uh, settle in on a lot of these good truths that God has for us today. But to set the context before we read John 4... Uh, just a few weeks ago, we saw this one-on-one conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, okay? And if you remember a little bit of this one-on-one conversation that he's having with him, it's, it's interesting because today we're going to see a second one-on-one conversation that Jesus is going to have, but this one is much different. It's the same setting in the sense that it's a person-to-person, face-to-face conversation, but unlike Nicodemus, you have this woman of Samaria, where the conversation with Nicodemus happened at night, this conversation that we're going to look at today happens in the daytime. Nicodemus was a man, and this is a woman from Samaria. Nicodemus was highly respected in the culture at that time, and this woman is highly rejected at this time. Nicodemus was a righteous, considered moral man, and this woman is an immoral outcast in the culture's eyes at this time. And yet... With the love and the grace of Jesus, she, he gives both her and Nicodemus the same time, the same face-to-face conversation. I mean, there's a, a sense of grace and gentleness that Jesus gives, not just to those elitists like Nicodemus would have been, but also those who are seen as outcasts in society. Jesus meets face-to-face. And what I hope to, to show you today as we walk through this passage is a piece of this that we're going to look at is Jesus interacting with the outcasts outsider, the outcast, which some of us in the room fit that bill. We really feel that way, right? Some of you watching online feel that way. But then we're going to see Jesus also interact with the insider. He's going to talk with his disciples, those who he's been teaching and training, those that have heard him speak some things before. He's going to speak to the insider as well in this moment of history. But then lastly, Jesus is going to speak to the crowds, to the masses, to anyone who would hear. And I tell you that because that is everybody that's listening right now. We all fit into one of those categories. Outsider, insider, or just, I'm just a part of the crowd. Like I just showed up today and I'm just checking things out, right? But Jesus is going to speak to each one of those groups. And so as we look at Jesus talking to this woman at the well, just say welcome to the well, right? And draw up a seat, sit down, and let's see what Jesus would say to us today. All right, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria named Sychar, near the field of Jacob that was given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour or noon, so middle of the day. Verse seven. And a woman from Samaria came out to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from him himself and his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, anyone that drinks of this water be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I I won't be thirsty or have to come back here and draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, it's the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people, such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, all right, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We're going to stop right there. We'll keep reading some more as we unpack this in our, our passage today. But let's stop at verse 26 and let's pray now. Lord, I ask today that you would help us to uh, see our thirst, uh, to see the gift of living water that you give us. God, we thank you that your word speaks to both the, the outsider and the insider and the ones who are just a part of the crowd. God, thank you that you care and you love all people and desire for all people to know you and to trust in you. So Lord, we look at this passage and we just wanna praise you for the goodness of your love and your kindness to break down every racial barrier and social barrier, cultural barrier, to extend grace to us who so desperately need it. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us um, to see and receive your word today, that you would change and transform our hearts Lord, I I pray that now for our church. And let me just extend an invitation to you, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether I'm I'm a part of the crowd or I'm an insider or an outsider, would you just pause and pray and ask that God would be faithful to speak to you today? Would you be so bold just to pray this morning in this moment of silence to the Lord? Pray and ask him now. And then would you also pray for me as I walk through God's word and allow it to speak that God would just use me 
as an instrument for him and his glory today. Would you pray for me? Lord Jesus, just so thankful, so thankful for your word and how it speaks to us, how it calls us to believe and receive and live. And so Lord, I ask that we would do that today, that we would respond to your offer of grace. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so this first section that we read in this passage, it shows us how Jesus extends grace, extends grace to the outsider. You see right here at the very beginning, this whole thing about Samaria is important for us to grasp and understand because there's a, there's a lot here to unpack. But, but when you look at this, you see even deeper the grace that Jesus extends as he break, breaks through these racial and cultural boundaries. You see, Samaria was a place that Jews didn't go. They just didn't because of what had happened hundreds of years earlier. And so seven, about 700 years before this moment, 722, what happened was the Babylonian army came in and they took over and conquered Israel. And when they conquered Israel, they looked around and they're like, okay, some of y'all can stay here. You, you're, you're lower class and those that aren't influential, y'all can stay in the city. Y'all can continue to work because we actually need you to help the city continue. But all you top echelon wealthy people, your leaders, your influencers, y'all got to go. Y'all got to get out, right? And so they sent them out of the city. And at that time, out there in the, in the kind of wilderness where they were, they, they remained in their eyes pure. We're going to stay here and we're going to hold to the truths of God. We're going to believe these truths, even though we've been cast out of the city that God promised us. But those who remained in the city started to get to know the Babylonians, to interact with them, to care for them, and they started to, to intermarry together and then have families and live in the city and grow up in the city. Well, when all of the, the turmoil of the war had passed and the influential people were allowed to come back and the Jews came back into the city, the ones that were outside the city come back and they're like, wait a second, y'all who stayed here, man, y'all are, you're, you're, you're racial uh, half-breeds. You've intermingled together. You're, you're no longer welcome. We're the pure ones. We're the top echelon. We're actually the pure Jews. You can't be with us. You're not welcome here. And this tension and racial strife just grew and grew and grew. And so over hundreds of years, there continues to be strife where they're like, okay, you can't even worship with us anymore. You go and have your worship over there, you Samaritans. That's the half breeds, right? So they went over there like, we're going to build a, a, a temple here and we're going to worship God here on our mountain. And the Jews are like, well, our mountain's the best mountain. So there's all this strife that's going on and it's all due to race. It's terrible. It's terrible how sin can mar and distort God's world, right? I mean, we even see it in our culture, the atrocities of the past and how racism sadly creates even strife today. They're seeing a little glimpse of that at this time. So much so that people at that time were like, we aren't going to Samaria. The Jews, those that were pure Jews, they're like, we're not going there. We'll go around it. And so when Jesus and his disciples decide that they're going to go from Judea to Galilee, if you look at a map, it would make sense, like geologically, like I'm going to look, I'm going to go south, straight north, and I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Galilee. It would take them about three days to make that journey if they took a straight line and went there. This racism was going on, and so they're like, 
nope, I'm going to take 485 around it, okay? I'm going to go and hop on this and go all the way around the city so we don't have to go through Samaria. It was 46 miles difference. 46 miles for them to go around it instead of to go through it. That might not sound like a lot to us when we sit in our air-conditioned cars, right? Or our heated cars like today. But at that time, you had such hate and racism in your heart, you were willing to walk 46 miles around the city so you didn't have to interact with them? What in the world? I mean, if if you do the math, it was the difference between a three-day journey and a six-day journey. It doubled their journey length. They're like, we'd rather take three extra days to walk around it than to go in it. That's the tension of what's going on in the culture. Now, verse 4 is such an important verse, such a beautiful verse, and such a short verse. But if you have your John Scripture journals, I would encourage you to highlight this, underline this, mark this. But in verse 4, it's Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Wait a second. Ryan, he had to. I thought, like, people were taking 485 around it. You know, they were going... I didn't realize he had to go through it. This statement isn't Jesus, ah, he had to go through Samaria. Or there was no other option. That's not what it's saying. This is pointing to intentionality and purpose. Jesus intentionally chose to walk into the thick of the outsider community in order to make them insiders. There was purpose and intentionality behind Jesus to do this. I mean, if we read this, we think, well, maybe Jesus and his disciples were just like clumsy tourists. <laughs> they were just kind of like journeying their, their way from uh, Judea to Galilee, and they stumbled in to Samaria. Like, whoops, the map got flipped upside down. Let me get my fanny pack out. Let's pause for a minute. Like, that's what we might think. But that's not what happened. Like, Jesus is not a lost tourist in this moment. He's not. He's a man on a mission. A mission to extend grace to those who are outsiders. This is what Jesus is doing. This is the beauty of this passage, that he had to pass through Samaria. uh, Samaria. And not only did he choose to to share and extend grace to outsiders, he chose the outsider of the outsiders to start. Like you think you'd choose somebody a little bit closer and then say, we'll start with them and then journey to the, the furthest rings. No, 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 no. He starts with this woman from Samaria. We've already talked about the, the, the racial issue with her being a Samaritan and Jesus being a Jew. Jesus breaks that wall down. He's like, no, this is ridiculous. But then she's also a woman and Jesus is a man. At that time, that didn't happen. Men and women didn't talk and certainly not when they were alone at a well, right? And thirdly, this woman is an, an exile. She's an outcast. And she comes and she's alone. It tells us in, in verse six that it's about the sixth hour that she comes here. This tells us a lot about this woman because nobody would go at this time, nobody would go and gather water from a well middle of the day. I mean, this is desert land, this is hot. You didn't go in the middle of the day. If you wanted water, you would go early in the morning while it was still cool or you go late in the evening, right? But this woman is coming at noon. Why? Well, it's because she's an outsider. The reason why is because she wants to be alone. Nobody wants to come draw water with this woman. No, she's a moral outcast. We don't want to draw water with her. At the same time, she doesn't want anybody else gossiping and slandering her. 
mean, if she went at the, the morning time, what we know about her, what Jesus says, like, there's probably other girls that would have been there at the well, been like, mm, yeah, here she comes again. Here's that Samaritan girl. Yeah, five, she's on five, but six, this, yeah. And they would have just gossiped about her and slandered her. She's like, I don't want to do that. They've shamed me. They've gossiped about me. They've embarrassed me. I don't want anything to do with that. I would rather go in the hot of the day when it's 100 degrees to carry water that weighs 50, 60 pounds and drag it back in than come and, and be around people that are judging me. That's, that's the setting. That's what's happening in this moment. And what Jesus does, what Jesus does is he deliberately pushes through every single barrier, morally, traditionally, religiously, in society's eyes, and culture's eyes, all of that stuff. He bursts through all of those to extend grace to this woman. That's what Jesus does. And the way he extends grace is he says, hey, I've got something that you need. I've got living water. I've got living water. He asks her for water first because this is what Jesus does all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks on two planes. He uses something physical and tangible that we understand and then he makes a spiritual point out of it. And he starts, he's like, hey, would you give me something to drink? And she's like, whoa, wait, what's going on? You're asking me? Like, that's weird. And then he's like, well, hey, if you knew who was asking you, you would ask me for living water. And then she's like, you don't even have a rope or a bucket. Like, how are you gonna get water and you're offering me water? You're asking me for water. What's going on right here? It's because Jesus is talking on two different levels. He's using something physical, water, that we know when we thirst for it and we long for it. And Jesus is saying, I've got water that will satisfy not your lips, but your soul. But your soul. And she, just like we, was still confused. <laughs> like, wait a second, what are you talking about? And then, so she's like, okay, you're saying you got this water that never ends and it's going to satisfy me? So are you greater than Jacob? And if you read in the Old Testament, Jacob was the guy that, that founded this land and started this well, and he drank out of it, and his kids drank out of it, his great-grandkids, and like years and years and years and years and years have gone by, and now this woman's drinking out of it, and Jesus is drinking out of it, and, and, and he's talking about water that, that'll make you never thirst again, and she's like, wait a second, see this water I gotta keep coming to, and I gotta keep drinking. And, and Jacob, he's the one that founded this, and he drank from it, like, are you really better than, than what he offered us? Are you offering us something greater than what he offered us in this water of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? Now, once again, I think the, the grace of Jesus comes through. I mean, what he could have said in response to this lady's comment uh, is numerous. But when she makes this statement, are you greater than our father Jacob? I don't know what Jesus thought in this moment. This is all a guess. But I wonder if, if Jesus thought that moment yeah, I remember when I created Jacob. I remember when I wrestled with Jacob and uh, he actually lost, like I popped his hip out of joint, like I showed him that I was stronger than him. Yeah, I know Jacob. And actually the last time I saw Jacob was not too long ago, just a few years ago when we were in heaven, we were hanging out. He was like worshiping me. Yeah, 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 I, I know Jacob and I'm pretty sure I'm greater than Jacob. You know, like that's what Jesus could have thought as being the son of God. He could have done that. He could have thought that in that moment. But in his kindness, his response is, yeah, you, he drank of this water and you drink of this water. But if you drink of the water that I'm giving you, you will never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. Now, still, the question is, what is this living water? <laughs> if you're saying we need this and it's going to satisfy the, the thirst of our, our souls, then, then what is it? 
Well, thankfully, as we walk through the book of the Bible, the Bible interprets itself. It's the best interpreter. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder. John chapter 7, Jesus is going to speak again. You'll see this verse on the screen. John chapter 7, verse 37. It says that Jesus stood up and he cried out. Again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow fountains of living water. Still, what is this living water? He tells us. Now this he said about the Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity, God himself. Whom those who believed in him would receive. This living water that Jesus is talking about here is that God would come and dwell with us. That what our, our souls and our hearts are, are truly thirsty for is for God. We have an eternal hole in our hearts that only God can fill. Temporary things cannot satisfy an eternal soul. Can't do it. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is the engine of your soul is meant to run off the fuel of the living God. And so this is what I'm giving you. I'm giving you God. Our hearts remain restless until we find our rest in him. Until we find our rest in him. And that's what Jesus is offering. When he talks about this water here, he's saying, there's an eternal God, one who goes beyond time, and he wants to be with you. He wants to give you all that your heart longs for and more. So yeah, you can drink from all these different pools of water and you will still be thirsty. And then she responds in verse 15, all right, um, that sounds great. Why don't you give me some of that then? Why don't you give me some of that water? Now her mind is still thinking, I don't want to come back here to this well and have to deal with the shame anymore. I don't want to have to deal with judgment anymore. I don't want it. I mean, that's what she says in verse 15. Hey, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water again. You see, she's still talking about physical water. I don't want to come back here and be around people that are going to judge me. I don't want to do it. And Jesus is like, you're still talking about physical thirst, but what you need is your spiritual thirst to be quenched. And so Jesus, it looks like, tries to change the subject. In verse 16, he says, okay, you want this water? Why don't you go and get your husband and come back here? Which, that's just odd. When somebody's like, hey, I really want this water, I really want to believe and have this everlasting life that you're asking for, like most of the time you go to like an evangelism class that tells you how to share Jesus with other people, it's going to be like, oh, that person asked for it, like pray with them in that moment. And Jesus is like, whoa, wait a second, nope. You got to understand two extremely important things in order to receive this water. And we have to understand two extremely important things in order to get this living water. And Jesus is going to say, you have to understand your sin and you have to understand your Savior. You have to understand your sin. You have to under, understand your Savior. And so she asked for the water, and Jesus is like, okay, you're thinking about physical water. Let me give you the spiritual water. Well, I'm not thirsty for the spiritual water side of things. Oh, yeah, you're not, you're not thirsty in your soul? Then go get your husband and come here. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you, you've had five. And the one that we're with now is not your husband. Jesus is saying in this moment, men have been running your life for years. And not just one man, but a group of men, five of them. And I want you to know that you are deeply spiritually thirsty. And that thirst is to be met with God. You deeply thirst for closure and acceptance and significance. 
You're deeply thirsty and you're drinking from the fountain of male relationships and approval. And you're thirsty. We're thirsty. I mean, what, what Jesus does for this lady to highlight her struggle and her sin of trying to find her identity in all of her relationships, and Jesus does the same thing for us, where he looks at her and he says, hey, in order to be saved, in order to have this living water, go call your husband, go, go, go bring your sin here and bring it to me. He'll do the same for us, but it'll be different for us. And Jesus will come to you and he'll be like, hey, go grab that career. Bring in that career that you're willing to sacrifice everything for your family, your time, all of your thoughts, bring that career here and bring it to me. Your money, oh, you don't wanna, you don't wanna generously serve others with your money, you wanna keep that to yourself, you would rather not serve the poor or help others. Hey, bring your money to me. Go get it and bring it to me. Jesus is gonna look at, at all of us and say things like, bring your, your lust to me, bring your discontentment to me, go get it and bring it here to me. But Jesus isn't asking her nor us to bring our, our, our sin to him in order to condemn us. We talked about this last week. It was in order to convict us that we would live differently, that we could be freed from this. This is what Jesus is offering her, freedom and everlasting life. He's not saying you can have a, a living water, but nope, nope, let me hide that over there. Nope, because you got this sin. No, he says bring your sin to show that you're thirsty, to show that you desperately need God because all these other temporary waters cannot fill your soul. You can't find it out there. You can't. The engine of your soul was built to live off the fuel of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, he looks at her and looks at us and says, bring your sin. Now, what she does in this moment, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed it because we do it too. I do it. Jesus calls her sin to the table, right? And then her response is one of deflection. God convicts us of our sin and then she responds in verse 20 or verse 19, hey, so I, I think you're a prophet. Like you seem to have your, your, your knowledge, you know stuff that's going on. Um, so, so since you know stuff that's going on, tell me, you know, where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain where this temple is in Samaria or should we go over there and we should worship with, with the, the Jews in Jerusalem? Like which mountain is it? And what she's doing is she's trying to, Jesus juke. She's trying to be like, scoop, like, nope, not talking about the sin, not talking about that. Well, let's move on and let's talk about something that sounds healthy and theological, but ultimately it's not getting to the heart, to the thirst of the issue. That's what she's doing in this moment. And we do the exact same thing. Some of you even now, God has convicted you of sin or has convicted you of sin in, in your life over the last week and month, and you're just like, mm, I'm struggling though. Like, there's so many questions I have about the Bible, so I can't believe in Jesus, I can't get this living life because... Man, what about dinosaurs? <laughs> what do you do with dinosaurs? Where do those fit into the Bible? I don't know. Man, I've got so many questions. What about the ark and like how big it was and the flood and all that kind of stuff that happened? Man, what about, um, man, this whole thing of like the resurrection? I, I don't know. And so we sit there and we debate all these questions instead of dealing with first the sin of our heart and seeing our Savior. And that's the reality of it. I mean, if we desire to get living water, we have to know our thirst. And the reality is we will never, never get living water until we first know our thirst for the Lord. And that's what Jesus is trying to get her to see in this moment. See your thirst. And she deflects and wants to talk about worship. She wants to talk about worship. 
Now, I'm not gonna spend much time on this passage right now because this wasn't the whole point of this passage. She deflects Jesus' comments about the gospel and, and Jesus, once again, in his grace and his mercy, still answers her question. She's like, hey, what about worship? What does that look like? And I just wanna quickly highlight this and we're gonna move on because this isn't the main point of this passage in this moment in Jesus' life. Jesus responds and he says, you know what? It's not about a place, it's about a people. That's what worship's about. And he says, you're gonna worship in spirit and in truth. That's what God is looking for. Spirit and in truth. Now that word for spirit is speaking of our emotional side, that there's a passion and there's a fervor that when we sing to the Lord and we worship in our life, like we are cheerful in it. God desires a cheerful giver, right? That's what God calls us to be and to do. And so there's a sense of spirit that there's gonna be an action that goes with it, that we're gonna sing loudly, that we're gonna uh, praise the Lord with our actions. Like there's gonna be a fervor and an emotion behind it. Then the second thing is truth. We'll worship him in truth. That's we know the truth of God and who he is because he has rightly told us who he is and who we rightly understand him to be is how we rightly worship. And so we have to know the truth. But here's the problem. So many churches, specifically in America, falter to one side or the other of this. Like some churches are like, man, the spirit's moving there. Like people are excited. They're jumping up and down. They're clapping. They're raising their hand. They're like doing all these things. You're like, oh man, look, they've got so much spirit in there. They've got so much emotion there. But then many of them don't have the truth to go with it. It's just all emotion and passion. And then you have the opposite side of things where people fall into truth and they're just like so sterile in everything they do. Like we're gonna worship God right now. This is what we're gonna do, right? Because we have the truth and this is the truth that we hold on to. No passion, no smiles. We don't even have to sing loudly. Like that, that's the extremes. And Jesus is like, both are wrong. Both are wrong. You need to, to sing to the Lord with passion and with a heart of love and the truth. This is what God is calling us to do. And so yes, we sing loudly. Yes, we raise our hands and surrender to the Lord. Yes, we do because he calls for it. Now notice the last part of verse 23. And this is the last thing I'm gonna say on this worship section and we'll move on. But look at what it says. He is seeking such people to worship him. Such people. God is not looking for a performance. He's looking for a people. God is not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. God's not looking for a concert. He's looking for a congregation. God is out looking for people and that's why he comes to this lady because he cares about people. He loves people. And so yes, he comes and he extends grace to this outsider and he extends grace to everyone that feels like an outsider in this room and online. And this is what Jesus does because he is seeking to save those who were lost. Jesus cares about people. He cares about them. And so we have to see that truth. Yes, we are spiritually thirsty. We have sin in our life. But we also have to see the grace of Jesus Christ, that he cares for people. We will never get living water unless we know that he is a gracious redeemer. We'll never get it. If you know your sin and that's all you know and you know you're thirsty, then you will shrivel up and die in that thirst unless you know that Jesus is a gracious redeemer. See, this whole conversation of worship, it comes out of that. And this woman, once again, I'm gonna to try to Jesus juke him. And uh, she says, okay, well, I know the Messiah's coming and I don't understand all this stuff. You're talking about living water. You're talking about worshiping the spirit and truth. I don't understand all that stuff. But there is a Messiah that's gonna come. And when he comes, he'll, he'll explain all this. Feeling like, probably in her mind, like, yeah, I finally got rid of him asking me questions. And then Jesus responds and says, 
I who speak to you am he. And you see, this is the second time Jesus has tried to tell her, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's here extending grace to you. In verse 10, he tells her previously, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, what Jesus said when he starts here is if you wanna get this living water, you gotta understand that I'm a gracious redeemer. It is the gift of God. You see that in verse 10? Do not miss that. The gift of God. This woman had nothing to give for her salvation. I mean, maybe Nicodemus that we looked at a couple weeks ago could say, hey, here's a laundry list of great things that I've done to earn my salvation. And here you go, here's the list, God. This woman did not have it. And to be honest, both Nicodemus's list and her non-list do not earn salvation. It is a gift from God. And Jesus is telling us in this moment, it's grace upon grace upon grace. You don't earn it. You don't work your way there. You don't clean yourself up first and then come to Jesus. No, it is a gift from God. And is extended through Jesus Christ to us. That's why he says in verse 10, if you knew who it was that is saying this to you, if you knew me, if you knew I was the Messiah, it would change you. You would be like, yes, give me that drink. And the same for us. We have to know our sin, but we have to know our Savior as well. And our Savior is Jesus Christ. He is the one that has extended this free gift. So may we fix our eyes on the treasure that's worth our souls. Jesus in him alone, he extends grace to us. He extends grace to the outsider. But Jesus in this passage also speaks to the insider. He gives the insider proper perspective. Look back with me. We'll pick up in verse 27. I'll read a few more verses for us. Just then his disciples came back. These are the insiders, right? And they marveled that he's talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They just thought it, right? They didn't say it, but they thought it. So the woman left her water jar, the very thing that she had come there to get. She left it and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Now, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap for what you did not labor. Others have labored and now you enter into their labor. What is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus, as he talks to insiders, as he talks to his disciples, once again, he's gonna use a, a heavenly illustration or an earthly illustration to apply a heavenly spiritual truth. And so what he does is he says, hey guys, I want you to think about two things. I want you to think about farming and I want you to think about food, okay? And it's almost humorous here. I think it is humorous. They went into the city to get food, to get food for Jesus. And then they come back out and Jesus doesn't want the food. 
Like part of me is like, oh, dude, Jesus, but like, that's the whole reason we went in there and you don't want food. And then they start to talk to one another in verse 32. Hey, Peter, did you give him something to eat? James, did you? Did you give, he said he's got food that we don't know about. Like who brought him food that we didn't know about? We, why do we even go into the city in the first place? And then Jesus is like, no guys, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. He's using food to once again show what our hearts really long for. What our hearts really long for. He used water with the woman at the well and now he's gonna use food with his disciples. And he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent me. Jesus in this moment is trying to help people understand the comparison and help us understand the comparison between how we hunger for food and how we should hunger to do the will of God. Jesus is conveying that the most satisfying thing that you can do with your life, that I can do with my life, is the thing that God calls us to do. That's what Jesus is saying. We have no idea how satisfying this would be to our soul for many of us never take that step to be obedient to him. There are several places in the Bible, this is just one, where the joy of Christianity is linked to mission. Jesus is saying, your stomach can be full, but your soul can be completely empty. And I dare say that all, if not almost everyone in this room is famished or at least undernourished because we're not eating the food that Jesus eats. We're not looking to the food to do the will of God. You see, this this hunger that we have comes from a lack of mission. And sadly, America puts a mission before us that we should live, but it's not one that satisfies, right? The whole thing that we put before us, the American dream that we wanna buy into is, you know, you, you, you go to school, and when you go to school, then you get a job, make a little money to hopefully pay off some of those student debts, and as you pay off those debts from school, then you can buy a house, and then when you buy a house, then you can have a family and, and enjoy that. And then you'll get a big screen TV and sit on the couch and eat chips and watch that big screen TV until you die. And that is the American dream, right? Like, come on, this is, this is good. And then we wonder, why does it satisfy us? We're just like, wait, what are you doing? Because this doesn't satisfy. It can't. God knows that we're meant for something so much more. And so Jesus looks, he's like, you want to know why your, your soul is shriveled up and why you're so hungry and famished right now? It's because you're not using your life the way I created you to be used. You see, Jesus loves to use people through his power to transform institutions and families and neighborhoods and countries. He wants to transform battered families and broken minds. Jesus wants us to do all of these things. This is what he's calling us to do. This is the food that he's mentioning here. That he's saying, this is the will of God for you to transform this broken world. As I'm the ultimate redeemer, you be a redeemer in your culture. And they probably felt like we feel when we hear that. How in the world am I going to do that? <laughs> like, that's a lot, Ryan. Like, that's a big mission. It is. It is. But God is calling you to play your part. Not to do everything, but to do what God has called you to do. And that's why he uses this imagery of farming. He's like, guys, guys, I know you feel overwhelmed that, you're, that you want to do everything right now, but you need to realize that it's like farming. Like one person sows, another person waters, another person reaps. 
Not one person has to do all of those things. But God has called us to play our part, to be faithful, to do what God has called us to do. And that is gonna come out of a love for God, not out of a love for a list. I love how this woman responds to Jesus' grace in this moment, verse 29. She leaves her water jar, the thing she came there for, and she runs back into the city because she's found something greater, something better. And what she says in verse 29, I love, she says to everybody, come and see the man. She doesn't come in and say, hey guys, guess what? I got a laundry list of moral dues that you guys got to hear. Like this guy was telling me this whole list of things that you have to keep and all these things you have to do. Come on out here. It's so freeing. Come on out here. That's not what she does. Nor in this moment was Jesus commanding her to go to this city. He shares grace with her and shares truth with her and shows her her sin, but not met with judgment, but with grace. And she turns around and she's like, this is amazing. This man knew everything about me. He knew all my sins and yet he still loved me. Can this be the Christ? See, this is what God's calling us to do, to be faithful to share this truth with others who do not know and to play our part in that. There's some family members and coworkers and friends that you will interact with that I will never even meet. I won't because God hasn't called me to do what he's called you to do. And God hasn't called you to do what God has called me to do. God has called us to do exactly what we were meant to do through his word, to share this good news of Jesus. So a quick application point with this is, church family, let us not be famished, but be filled with his mission. Be filled with his mission. And I want you to do this on an individual level, but I want you to have a deep trust and hope that our church is doing this on a corporate level. You're gonna hear in just a couple weeks, we were able to financially support the gospel going into Pakistan in a number of different ways. It's just amazing how we were able to serve and care for refugees that are over there and help even churches get started there in the area of Middle East. So you'll get to hear a little bit of that at a later day. But we're doing this. We're going from neighborhoods to nations. We're about to do an outreach in a neighborhood that's local here that's primarily filled with the nations, people from all around the world. And our missions team is gonna go out and serve and give out food and love and just care on people because we desire what Jesus desires, that grace would be extended to both the insider and the outsider, that it would go to all people, which is where this passage ends. Let me read just the last few verses. This passage ends with this. Many... Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay with them, he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Do you see that inclusive language there that the gospel goes to all people? Many Samaritans believe, many people in the city believe he's the savior of the world, of all nations. This is our God. And so Jesus offers salvation to all who would believe and invites us as a church to respond in the same way that we would follow Jesus' example and that we would share the truth with those who do not know the good news, that living water that we can have in Jesus Christ. Church family, this is the reason why I've challenged you guys to be praying Psalm 67 for us as a church. Those of you that have been partnered with us in ministry and mission here, I sent an email out just a few weeks ago highlighting Psalm 67. You'll see it on the screen. 
but we're praying this verse because this is the mission that God has called us to. This is the heartbeat. Psalm 67, verse one says this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Too many people stop right here and they just pray the prosperity gospel. God, would you just make us healthy, wealthy, and happy? But verse two tells us why we pray for God's blessing, why we ask for God's grace. It says that your way may be known on the earth. <laughs> your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. <laughs> God's heartbeat is the heartbeat of the nations. And so we want to be faithful to share this good news of Jesus Christ with others. We want him to be gracious to us and bless us and let his face shine upon us so that we can share that living water with others. The living water that he gives us is not meant to be a pond. It's meant to be a flowing river that we extend to other people. Church, may we have this heartbeat that Jesus has to share this good news with others. Now let me close with this. And this is important. You see, in this passage, this is all foreshadowing. This is all foreshadowing. See, Jesus sits here at the well and he asks for a drink. He says, I'm thirsty. But there's another time that we'll get to in the Gospel of John where Jesus will cry out again and say he's thirsty. It's John chapter 19, verse 28. As Jesus hangs on the cross for our sins, your sins and my sins. It says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all finished, that he had lived the perfect life, that he was now dying the perfect death, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. On the cross, at that hour, when he said, I thirst, he thirsted so that we would never have to. He died in thirst so that we could have living water. He had the ultimate spiritual thirst and he died in torment so that we could have the cool, freeing waters of the favor of God. This is what Jesus did. This is how we, we live in the freedom of, yes, we know our sins, but we know our Savior. He thirsts that we would never have to be thirsty again. And so church family, as we move now to the Lord's Supper, that is what we're remembering. That is what we're remembering that he thirst so that we would never have to thirst. And the Bible is extremely clear that this moment where we take this is, is for believers. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never realized the depths of your sin and the, the love of your savior, then it's okay not to take this this morning. God would actually encourage you not to. But if you're right now, you're convicted and you're like, I want that living water, then you pray and ask God to save you and then you take this with great joy. You take this with great joy. Now God's word's clear as well that we have to understand our sin and our savior. And he tells us to confess our sins before we take the Lord's Supper. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna do what Jesus said to this woman. Bring, bring your husband, go get him. Bring it to the cross, bring it to me. You go get that sin that God has been calling you to go get for a long time that you've still been holding on to and hiding. And you bring it before him today and you confess that sin. You do it in the, the, the quietness of your heart, but you do it to a savior who saves. And you ask him to forgive you of your discontented heart. You ask him to forgive you of your laziness and your half-hearted fellowship of Jesus Christ. You pray and you, you confess your anxieties to him and say, God, I know that I should be trusting you, but I'm trusting myself more. 
You bring your addiction to him, your depression to him, whatever it is, you bring it to him. And I think the reason why he tells us to confess our sins before we take the Lord's Supper is because as we bring those sins before him, we can feel shame. And Jesus doesn't want us to. He wants us to know that we're forgiven, just like this lady. And so he tells us, after you confess your sins, you look and you remember my body was given for you. My blood was shed for you. This is our assurance of pardon. This is how we know without a shadow of a doubt we are forgiven because Jesus thirst for us in our place so that we would never have to thirst. So let's take a moment now in the silence and just pray to God, bring whatever it is to Jesus now and confess those sins and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Pray now. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you what your word says, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, to confess our sins and find forgiveness. It's not your judgment. It's not shame. It's not guilt. Lord, it is your kindness. And so thank you for showing us our sin, that we can confess it to you. And we trust in your promise as well, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for that truth. We claim it now. Amen. Take that bread and remember that Jesus thirsts so that you would never have to. Take it and remember his body that was given for you. And then drink this cup, remembering that his blood was shed to save you and I. Church family, we opened worship today in Isaiah 55. And I believe that John 4 is actually fulfillment of Isaiah 55. But there in verses six and seven, I want it to be what our hearts settle on as we go and we sing to the Lord. It says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked say of his way and the righteous man of his thoughts, may they turn and forsake them and return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And our God, our God, he will abundantly pardon us. So church, let's stand now and let's sing to the one who has pardoned us from our sins.